We're in our series on the doctrine of Scripture, and we've talked about a number of features of Scripture. This week, we'll talk about Scripture's power. Scripture's power. Now, power and authority often go hand in hand, and we certainly see that in the government authorities over us. You, you recall Romans 13, the first few verses of that chapter say, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, sometimes governments exercise too much power and become oppressive totalitarians. And sometimes governments lose power and anarchy follows. We've seen both of those in our nation in various places in recent times. Sometimes we see power without authority, bullies, gangs, mafia, terrorists. These demand that people behave the way they want, but they have no right to do so. And there is also authority without power. And authority without power is generally useless authority. When I think of authority without power, I think of Barney Fife. Remember the deputy from the Andy Griffith show? He has a uniform and a badge, but his gun isn't loaded. Everybody knows it. We see authority without power, sadly, in many families today, when for too long parents have abdicated their authority and have not exercised their power over their children. And then it gets to the point where the parents want their authority back, but by then, they've lost any power over their children. Well, we have something in our hands today that has both authority and power. It has the right to make demands of us, and it has the power to accomplish what it demands. So this week, we'll look at the power of Scripture, and then next time, we'll look at the authority of Scripture. As we've talked about in the past, critics have always tried to deny the true power of God's word. They attack it as a backward, error-filled collection of nonsense from ignorant ancients who didn't know any better. But of course, today we're much wiser, aren't we? We don't believe the silly stuff in the Bible. But of course, sometimes it's not outright denial of Scripture, but the implicit denial that comes when other things are put in the Bible's place, or other things are seen as necessary to help get the message out. Now, for many years, John MacArthur, for one, has pointed out the tendency all too many churches have to downplay the Bible, to try to dull the edges of the sword of the Spirit, to soften the message so no one gets offended. This is a book called Our Sufficiency in Christ. It came out in 1991. This will be in the church library soon. This is an extra that we had, uh, by coincidence, providentially. Uh, we had it today. But he says this, and this, remember, is more than 30 years ago. There are many today who believe the truth of God's word isn't enough to move people to repentance. Some believe we must also be able to exhibit signs, wonders, and resurrections to convince unbelievers of the truth of the word. Others feel we must disguise the gospel in a cloak of subtlety, make it culturally culturally relevant, or otherwise adapted to accommodate unbelievers' hardness of heart. They would rather operate with synthetic seed than sow the living seed of God's word. Both perspectives deny the inherent power of God's word and spirit, as well as the place of his sovereignty and redemption. I'm amazed by what people believe they must do to augment the power of God's word. 
Many in the church today seem to believe that you must have an angle to present the gospel to a hostile world. You must be indirect and winsome and simplistic and careful not to turn anyone off. And if, God forbid, anyone should be offended or reject the message, it means you have failed. Is that a biblical perspective? No, it is not. It has opened the door to some bizarre evangelistic strategies. The church apes nearly every fad of secular society. Heavy metal rock, rap, graffiti, breakdancing, bodybuilding, brick smashing, jazzercise, interpretive dance, and stand-up comedy all have been added to the evangelical repertoire. Turn on most Christian television shows, and you'll see a parade of talk shows, music videos, carnival acts, comedy routines, musical variety shows, and other performances virtually identical to the programming on secular stations, except the Christian stations use the name of Jesus. It's nothing but hedonism under the guise of religion. Many assume that without some gimmick, the gospel message just won't reach people, and unless we accommodate it to the fashion of our day, we can't hope for it to be effective. End quote. Now, years ago, I visited a church where the band played The Eye of the Tiger from the movie Rocky III as an offertory. And apparently that song fit the theme of the service better than any song identifiable as Christian. And the trend hasn't gotten any better in the 30 years since this book was written. Some years ago I saw a sign in front of a local church that said, Have fun in church or your money back. By the way, it's not out front here. And so many churches are geared now toward fun, entertainment, hedonism under the guise of religion. Well, we can ask ourselves, what is the real power in our message? Is it in gimmicks or is it in marketing? We, of course, believe that the Bible is the only message God has blessed with his power, and we don't need to help it out. Just listen as I read a few scriptures that speak of the power of God's word. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. When God sends his word, it's powerful to do what he intends for it. Romans 1.16, I think you know this well. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those or to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And 2 Corinthians 10.3-5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And now this is not physical fortresses, but these are religions, philosophies, worldviews, anything that Satan builds to oppose Christ. Continuing, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Let's look more in depth at a few verses. Hebrews 4, verse 12. We saw this just a few weeks ago in Tom's study of Hebrews. Hebrews 4, verse 12. Again, I think you know this well. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And in context, the writer of Hebrews is warning those who may not have fully embraced Christ, who have not entered into the Sabbath rest of Christ, as we see earlier in this passage. They may outwardly look like Christians, but their hearts may be attached to their old works righteousness and their danger of drifting, as Thomas mentioned a number of times. 
But these words of Hebrews 4.12 are true for us as well. Hopefully none of us are drifting like some of these people here in this letter. But we all need this verse to remind us of what God's word is. The word, it says, judges, that condemns, convicts, and converts. It is living, not just some dead words written centuries ago. It is active. It has energy. It moves. It's not static. The word is sharp. It pierces and cuts. Think of a scalpel with which a surgeon can open you up and look inside your body and see what's really going on. The scalpel helps diagnose what's wrong and may be used to fix the problem. The Bible is a spiritual scalpel. It cuts into our souls and it lays bare our sin, convicting us, but also by God's grace, removing the sickness and putting us back together again. It also says here in verse 12, it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's, it is the judge, it's the critic of our thoughts and intentions. And no earthly critic can truly judge your thoughts and intentions, but this divine critic can. Let's look back at Psalm 19. Psalm 19. We'll focus on verses 9, sorry, 7 to 11. There's a pattern here in these verses. We have a name for the word, and then what the word is, and then what the word does. We have a name for the word, what the word is, and then what the word does. Verse 7. The first half of that verse says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Here, God's word is called the law, and it's perfect, and it restores the soul. It means it's without flaw. Perfect. It restores the soul. And the soul here is like the one of the psalmists in many psalms, but listen to Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become tr- disturbed within me? <clears throat> For one who is in despair, who's troubled, who's disturbed, the word brings restoration. It restores the soul. Second half of Psalm 19, 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It is sure, it is certain, it is reliable, and it makes wise the simple. So the simple can humbly listen to God's word and gain wisdom. Verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. They are right, they are righteous, they are without sin. And not only is it self-right, but it guides us into righteousness. It also rejoices the heart. something that following God's word makes us dreary and depressing. But it's just the opposite for the child of God. We rejoice knowing that we are walking in his way. So those who are glum, gloomy Christians, they're probably not digging into the precepts of the Lord themselves. Second half of verse 8 says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The commandment of the Lord is pure, Enlightening the eyes. It's pure, without error, without any stain. And it enlightens the eyes. Listen to Charles Spurgeon on this. He says, Whether the eye be dim with sorrow or with sin, the scripture is a skillful oculist and makes the eye clear and bright. Look at the sun and it puts out your eyes. Look at the more than sunlight of revelation and it enlightens them. The purity of snow causes snow blindness to the alpine traveler, but the purity of God's truth has the contrary effect and cures the natural blindness of the soul. So we look at God's word. 
we stare at the, the light of God's word, instead of blinding us, it gives us uh, more insight, more knowledge, more purity. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It is like pure, pure, clean. It also cleans us, and it endures forever. This is not some how-to book that is a bestseller now, in the remainder bin for two ninety-nine tomorrow, and completely forgotten the day after that. But the Word of God is forever settled in heaven. And then verses, the second half of verse nine through verse eleven says, "The judgments of the Lord are true; they are righteous altogether. They are true; they are righteous; they are desirable; they are sweet, more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb." Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. So it warns us, and by keeping it, we are ourselves rewarded. So the power of God in his word does all this. It restores our soul, it makes us wise, it rejoices our hearts, it enlightens our eyes, it endures forever, it warns us, and it leads us into a great reward. One other passage to look at just briefly, Second Timothy chapter 3. Again, we've looked at this many times, both my teaching and Tom's and Brett's as well, I'm sure. Uh, verses 15 to 17. 2 Timothy verse 3, verses 15 to 17. From childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that, le- that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In these verses, we see a, a short two-point outline. Scripture has the power to save, and scripture has the power to sanctify. First of all, the power to save. Verse 15, the sacred writings are able to give you wisdom, not just facts, not just intellectual firepower, not merely worldly wisdom, but wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. As we saw before, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And 1 Peter 1.23-25 says, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. There's the the word of God that is alive and it lasts, it endures. And then Peter quotes Isaiah 40, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. This forever word, this imperishable, enduring word is what was preached to you. It has this power to lead you to God, to to make you born again. So scripture teaches us about our sin as it saves us. It talks about our powerlessness to overcome our sin. It also teaches about grace and mercy, a loving God who sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. And it teaches us about resurrection and everlasting life. All these things scripture does is it works in us to save us. But scripture also has the power to sanctify. It shows us how to live holy, Christ-like lives. We see its power in Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. 
And then verse 11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. So if a young man wants to keep his way pure, he wants to not sin against God, young woman or old man, old woman, any one of any age who wants to be pure before God, treasure God's word and keep it according to God's word. Ephesians 5.26 says that Christ cleanses us by the washing of water with the word. But back to 2 Timothy 3, it says in verse 16, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So teaching instructs us in the truth of God, in its reproof, it rebukes, convicts, it points out our sin. It is the faithful friend that wounds us for our own good. It's also profitable for correction. It helps us deal with the sin we find. You may have known people who were very good at reproof, but not so good at correction. They will point out your foolishness at falling down, but will not lift a finger to help you up. The scripture is not such a false friend. It sees you in your self-inflicted misery, shows you how you got there, and helps you get cleaned up, attends to your wounds, and sets you on your way again. The scripture helps us break the sinful patterns that we, we fall into that need to be corrected. And then, finally, it is profitable for training in righteousness. So it shows us how we then are to live in righteousness. And I heard a good illustration of the, the truth of this passage once before. Scripture shows us how to walk, the path to walk, that's teaching. It tells us when we've strayed from that path, and that's reproof. It tells us how to get back on the path, that's correction. And then it tells us how to continue on the path, that's training and righteousness. And then, Scripture uh, does this for us, besides all the things that's profitable for. Verse 17 says, So the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now this word adequate is better translated complete. If I uh, gave my wife a card on our anniversary, and I said, my love, you are the most adequate woman I've ever met. It probably wouldn't make for a good evening with it. <laughs> You're adequate. No, that's not what this word means. It means complete. If I said, you are the most complete woman I've ever met, you are all that I could ever want or need, that would be more true. It would also be a better compliment. But that's what God's word is here. It's not just adequate, not just barely good enough, but it's complete. Uh, some of you have been in the military or in the military now. You don't want to go out in the field without your rifle, without your pack, without whatever else you need, your food. You don't just run out against the enemy uh, you need to be equipped. You need to have all your equipment with you. If you don't take your equipment, you're not going to succeed in your your mission. But all that the soldier of Christ needs to be equipped for what God has called us to do to fight the good fight is here in his word. It equips us that we may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So it's no surprise that in the next verses, Paul has a special charge to Timothy. He says, I solemnly charge you, verse 2 says, to preach the word. What else would you do? There's nothing else that can be profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, to equip you for every good work. There's nothing else that can lead you to salvation through the wisdom it gives you through faith in Christ Jesus. So you have nothing else. You preach the word, not your own opinions, not the latest fads, but what the word says. It's the word that makes you wise to salvation. It's inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. 
that has made you perfectly equipped for every good work. So why would you want to preach anything else? It would be foolish and wasteful to preach anything else. And if Tom or Brett or I start preaching things that are not God's word in this pulpit, you're better off going somewhere else or even staying home. Because my opinions don't matter all that much. That's what God's word says that's matter, that, that matters. Well, that's just a, a short introduction to the power of God's word. But there's something missing from the message so far. And let's figure out that omission by asking a question. Who are the ones who knew the Bible best in Jesus' day? Yeah, the Pharisees, right. Sadducees, these the scribes. They were, were they saved though? Were they sanctified? They had the word, they knew the word in some, some sense. No, they were the ones who opposed Jesus most strongly. These are the ones who Jesus called hypocrites and sons of the devil. There have been so many liberal theologians who have studied the Bible in minute detail in the original languages. They knew or know the Bible in some ways better than we ever will. But their desire in studying the scripture is to tear it apart and reconstruct it to fit their own ideas of what it should say. I read once about an interesting interview between a a Unitarian minister named Marilyn Sewell and the famous famous atheist Christopher Hitchens died some years ago. He's the author of God is Not Great. So we have a Unitarian, very liberal minister, and then uh, a well-known atheist. And the Unitarian minister says this, the religion you cite in your book, that is, God is not great, is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And Hitchens says this, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, then you're really not, in any meaningful sense, a Christian. So we have an atheist who understands the scriptures better than someone who takes the title of Christian minister. Here we have an atheist who sees things more clearly than the supposed Christian. And these two see the same words in the page. One says, I don't believe that, and rejects it outright. But the other still rejects it, but in a different way. She says, it doesn't really mean what it says, but I believe in what it really means. So she's trying to find the meaning behind the, the, the meaning, you might say. And if we were able to somehow stand Christopher Hitchens here next to the Unitarian minister, what would set them apart from us who believe the scripture and believe the scripture means what it says? They've read the same Bible as we have, but they have come to completely different conclusions about it in their own ways. Is it intelligence? They may well be smarter than any of us. But the Bible calls them fools who deny God or his word. Why didn't these scriptures give them the wisdom that leads to faith, to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus? Why is the word of the cross, in the words of 1 Corinthians 1.18, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God? Where does the power in the word come from? There are a lot of books we could describe as powerful, even changed our lives. Looking at it as merely a work of literature, the Bible is powerful in the amazing stories it tells, but there are a lot of powerful stories out there. The difference is simply the Holy Spirit. Paul calls the Word of God the sword of the Spirit. And without the Spirit of God doing a work in someone's life, the Word of God will remain foolishness to them. They will remain blind in their sins.
Without the Spirit, there's no hope that the Scripture will give the wisdom that leads to salvation. So the Word of God is not some sort of automatic thing. If you read it, you're going to instantly be saved. But we have to have the, the Spirit of God work with the Word of God to touch our hearts and redeem us. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Martin Luther put it this way, In worldly and external affairs, which pertain to the livelihood and maintenance of the body, man is cunning, intelligent, and quite active. But in spiritual and divine things, which pertain to the salvation of the soul, man is like a pillar of salt, like Lot's wife, yea, like a log and a stone, like a lifeless statue, which which uses neither eyes nor mouth, neither sense nor heart. No prayers, no supplications, no admonitions, yea, also no threats, no chiding are of any avail. All teaching and preaching is lost upon him until he is enlightened, converted, and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse, verses, I'll start in verse 6. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you look at verse 7, you can give the law of God to someone who is in the flesh, but that flesh will not subject itself to the law of God. Maybe superficially, it will look like they're obeying God, but in the heart, it's not truly following God, and they cannot please God if they're in the flesh. But, look at verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin... Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So it is the Spirit who takes that law of God, the gospel of God, and gives us life through that. The the word of God is a tool the Spirit of God uses to redeem and to sanctify his people. Well, as we wrap things up here, did you have any questions so far? Are there any observations? Yeah. Sure. Yes and no. That, that's a difficulty. The word law is used many times of the scriptures, and sometimes it's more narrow-focused, talking just about the law of Moses, say, the Ten Commandments, or more broadly, say, the, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, sometimes of the whole Bible. And that's where we, when we're looking at the the whole of Psalm 19, obviously, when it was written, there was no New Testament. There wasn't most of the Old Testament written yet. But 
we see the law in that sense, in, in a broad sense, is that the, the word that God has uh, called us to, to follow. So we look at the other terms used of the law or of God's word, the law, the testimony, the precepts, commandment, and so forth, the fear of the Lord. Um, so the last one. Um, those those all speak of the, the fullness of God's revelation to us. Let's put it that way. So while well, in the narrowest sense, it could refer to the Ten Commandments, say, or the, the law of Moses, it does refer to all of God, all the things that God wants to teach us, and by which He restores our soul, He makes us wise, rejoices the heart, and so forth. Good question. Let's just look at a few things as we wrap up. First of all, if anyone has not trusted Christ for salvation, I challenge you to read the scriptures and find out what they say about Christ and salvation. And pray that God would open your understanding and show you the truth. And talk to any of us here, Tom or Brett or myself, someone else in the church. Ask, how can I be saved? Where can I look in the scriptures to understand God's word and believe in Christ and get the wisdom that leads to salvation, which is through faith in Jesus Christ? But for those who already know Christ, ask yourself, are you taking advantage of the power of scripture? Look at James. James chapter 1, verse 25. James 1, 25. It says, the one who... Actually, let's just go back to verse 22 so we get the context. It's all good things here. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror... For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So, like those we saw earlier who see the law of God, but it doesn't touch their heart because they don't have the Spirit of God, we must also, as we look at this law, not forget what we hear, but do what it says. This term looks intently in verse 25, transits a Greek word which literally means to bend down to look into something. Does that remind you of a portion of any anything in scripture? Bending down to look into something? It's the same word as, as when the disciples bent in to look in Jesus' tomb to see if he's in there. It's, it's, it's not sort of a casual glance as you pass by something. It's looking intently at something to see what it is. And so we need to look intently at God's law, the perfect law, God's word, and abide by it. We also can look at 1 Peter 2.2. 1 Peter 2.2. Peter here says, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. In this word is the power to grow. If you're not growing in your faith, not growing in Christ, ask yourself, are you eating? If you stopped eating today and didn't eat day after day, pretty soon you would get sick and then you would die of malnourishment. And you can severely hurt your spiritual growth. You will severely hurt your spiritual growth if you're not in the word and abiding by the things that God teaches us. So we long for this word, we desire it, and by doing so we grow with respect to it. So Christians, take advantage of the power of Scripture. Use that. 
Third, do you deny the power of Scripture in the way you approach life? Just one example. Uh, to quote John MacArthur again, he says, it breaks my heart to hear some Christians say, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, and then live as perpetual warriors. They are saying one thing out of one side of their mouth, and another thing out of the other. It is incongruous to say how much we believe in the Bible, and then worry about God fulfilling what he says in it. And this is true of any sin. This week I've been discouraged by some things, and uh, having a pity party, and and just letting myself become despondent and, and sinning and doing so. I needed to be encouraged by God's word, and I didn't rush to it as I should have, and I needed to be rebuked for it. But that that's the kind of thing that even those who have walked with Christ a long time are quick to set aside the power to help us. If we're feeling weak, uh, where do we go to for strength? Is it ourselves, or we, we just sort of like to revel in our weakness sometimes and and to moan and groan and say, woe is me. Or do we get up by God's grace, embrace the word, let it energize us, give us power to walk forward as believers in Christ. So do you, do I, deny with our thoughts or actions what we say we believe about the power of Scripture? Do you try to overcome sin with human wisdom or sheer willpower? Or are you fighting sin with the sword of the Spirit and relying on his power. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this word you've given to us, and I confess my sin and not following it as I should, not letting it uh, purify me, letting it encourage me, letting it make me more like Christ, letting it uh, uh, grow me in respect to salvation. I have not longed for it as I should, and I know that we could all confess that at times we do not long for it as we ought to. We long for other things, the, the husks, the, the, the promises of the world. We do pray that you would help all of us to long for this word more diligently, more, more faithfully, more fully. We also pray for your spirit to touch our hearts, especially those who don't know Christ today. May this be the day of salvation for them. We pray for that week after week for those we love in this, this body, and we know there could be those who come for many years who really, truly have not come to faith in Christ. We pray that you would use your word in a mighty way today, whether it be for those who don't know Christ or who do know Christ, that all of us, by understanding the power of the word and asking the Spirit to apply the word to us, that we would all become more like Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.